Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. And this week, we're talking about school choice, a portfolio of options, charters, vouchers, virtual classrooms. This is the vocabulary of the 21st century American education system. And having more of these private options is exactly what policymakers like Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos would like to see. But where did the idea of school choice or public charter schools or, or any of these things really come from? And what kind of impact does siphoning money from the public education system have on the students who are left in that system? Or the ones who are now taking virtual geometry classes in their kitchens? And how do race and class tie into the issue of where a kid goes to school? Naliwe Rooks tackles these questions in her new book, Cutting School, Privatization, Segregation, and the End of Public Education. As her subtitle and a whole host of studies suggest, American schools are becoming just as segregated as they were in the middle of the 20th century, when Brown v. Board of Education was first decided. And the origin of charter schools, far from being a mid-80s technocratic dream, seem to have played a big part in that from the very first segregation academies that opened in the wake of Brown v. Board of Education. So the story is way darker than it first appears. And to really understand what's changed in the last 50 years, we have to go back to the beginning. Here to do that is Noliwe Rooks, who joined us from Cornell University, where she's the director of American Studies. Thanks so much for talking to us, Noliwe. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. So... Can you set the stage for us and give us a history of how our approach to public education has changed over the past 60 years? Yeah. uh, The moment of Brown really is, it's the moment that I think um, in American history books and most of American consciousness, um, we really think that there was this massive change that, that took place, and it was massive. Brown is actually a sort of midway point between the beginning of American education, um, which is much more a story pre-Brown um, about class. From the 1880s on, it really was the case that only the wealthy were even considered um, eligible to get any kind of education. Poor whites were 
shut out of schoolhouses as much as anyone else. And there was no state taxpayer-supported state education. That just didn't even um, come about until Reconstruction at the end of the Civil War, where money was really shifted from the supposed education of newly freed slaves to the education of poor whites Brown changed all of that. It was really not just the case that it was about the color of children. It had to do with an economic realignment with allowing people of African descent, people who had been formerly enslaved, to have full access to the dollars so that public funds would be used equally. And this was a complete and total sea change. So moving forward from Brown, the South engaged in what they call massive resistance to the idea of integrated schools. Um, And so most people don't know if they haven't studied it, it's not the way that history gets taught very often in high schools or or middle schools. Um, Brown was not actually enacted until the mid to late 60s at which point the federal government said, we will no longer give you any money if you if you continue to resist racial integration. And then you saw the South start to integrate. Um, but what happened was the 64 Civil Rights Act also exempted uh, northern school districts because northern school districts had never had written into law um, that you cannot have black and white students sitting in classrooms together. There was residential segregation, ideas about who could go to what school, but it was never the case that the North was any more interested in integration, quite frankly, um, than was the South. It was just they weren't under any kind of order. Nonetheless, by the 80s, actually the 70s, you started to see different government agencies and commissions come along and say, we really think that this whole integration experiment has gone entirely too far in the entire country. And you had business leaders um, who were working with elected officials and saying, you know, what no one has noticed, said the people who authored this report, um, is that American schools as a whole are now horrible. They're falling off the the map. We're we're testing worse than we ever have. Um, Literacy rates are lower than they've ever been before. And so this is, you know, we need to move away from these efforts to integrate schools um, because it's harming business. It's harming our standing. We can no longer find workers. And we need to turn schools toward business, which sort of opens the door for this period, um, the more contemporary, I'd say the 1990s forward, where education is now firmly segregated, so firmly segregated by race and or class. Right. And you coin a a term to talk about this, uh, segronomics, which you define as the business of profiting, specifically from high levels of racial and economic segregation. But how is that actually profitable? How how has money undermined the integration efforts of the past century, however half-hearted they may have been? When I started the book, it was going to be in about the 21st century because I was teaching at Princeton and there were so many young, enthusiastic, upper-class white kids who all of a sudden were having conferences or coming and taking classes or wanting to talk about urban education, education in um, highly segregated, very poor cities, Newark, New Jersey, Trenton, New Jersey, um, Philadelphia, 
South Bronx of New York. Like this, this became their their whole conversation about whether well, you know this is a civil rights issue, and it was it was breathtaking. And I wanted to write about that. I wanted to talk about you know all of these kids coming up with these ideas um, that were they were turning into businesses like Teach for America, or like the KIPP charter schools in particular. And I started to notice, though, that there were few of these young people who knew anything about these communities that they wanted to work in. They didn't know anything about poor rural communities. They'd not gone to public schools. If they went to public schools, they were highly financed public schools. They didn't know much about the communities or schools that they were now saying they were going to go in and fix. And so I really started to just think about, but then what is this big motivation? Not that it was even bad. Like, it's not a bad thing. It's great. You know, the more attention that we can get into suffering people— um, you know, we, we need more of that, not less. Um, but what I started to notice is that there was a whole business element to it where philanthropies, the Gates Foundation, the Broad Foundation, the Walton Family Fund, uh, along with government policies and corporations, were doing an awful lot to remake education policy, like multi-billionaires um, who have decided that they know what needs to happen to remake a public education system that they neither participate in nor nor send their children to. We Betsy DeVos, our, our Secretary of Education, and how limited they are in even trying to seek out advice from those communities about what has worked, what does need to change. But what they were proposing, um, like closing traditional public schools and expanding charter schools, expanding the alternatively certified teaching core like Teach for America and others, so much of that didn't work. And all of these became clear were business models. Um, they may have started from a desire to do some good, but they quickly became highly lucrative businesses. So Teach for America in, in 2016, the last time I was paying attention, um, you know, was a company worth $270 million. And so in looking at it further, what you saw was all of these businesses dependent on struggling urban school districts or rural school districts in order to work. They call them 90-90-90 schools. So there's schools that are 90% poor, below federally set poverty levels, 90% black or Latino, and 90% are falling below federal standards for educational attainment. That That is what they were talking about as their sweet spot. That was their growth spot. That's what they needed um, in order to have the biggest impact, as well as return the biggest kind of investment. So it, it wasn't that that big a jump from that to sort of say, but then this profit is a profit from poverty. It's a profit from segregation. And it's coming up with a bunch of forms, educational forms, that are basically educational experiments. You know, we have no history with them. They're new. They call them innovation, right? It's in, These are innovations. Um, which should be a good thing, except that you're innovating with poor children of color. Um, and when your innovations or your experiments fail, um, you know, the, the consequences are devastating. And yet businesses are profiting from that. Right. And the argument that they tend to advance, I mean, just like you mentioned with the, you know, the college kids at Princeton is that they're giving back, right? They're right. offering yes. choices or like yes. free market innovations or freedom yes. from government regulation. Yes. Um, what's so poisonous about those things? Like why, why are those things not 
actually a benefit to poorer minority families. So so that's the, the thing. When you say that you want to make technology available to communities that have been historically uh, excluded on its face, uh, you have no reason to, to think that that's anything but a good. The problem comes when you look at the impact of these various forms. So for charter schools, for example, uh, the last numbers that I saw was there's about almost a quarter, about 22 to 25 percent of public charter schools are performing better than public schools, are in fact um, demonstrably providing something um, that you couldn't find elsewhere in these kinds of communities. But what that means, though, is that there's 75 percent, three quarters of them are, are doing worse. And this is taxpayer money that's being spent hundreds of millions of dollars. And the FBI is consistently finding graft, um, theft, misrepresentation. So the question is, how is something that only a quarter of which is successful um, being prescribed as, a, as an alternative to traditional public schools, which are doing at least as well as the vast majority? In the city of Philadelphia, it was their goal to have uh, three-quarters of the students be educated with virtual schools. So in 2014, however, 100% of the children who took the state achievement test who had been uh, attending these these virtual schools failed, 100% failed. Wow. Um, so the question becomes... Why do we only focus on these experiments that are successful? And why is there so little conversation about how many of them are not? Why is public education being dismantled without asking if it's working? It's just basic questions. Is it working? Um, and why are these forms being allowed to, to continue to expand? And the, the answer just kept coming back to it's money. It's good business. What's really interesting to me, too, is that the origin of school choice of of charter schools, essentially, in the South was fundamentally kind of racist to begin with uh, because it was meant to create this private option for poor white kids that was publicly funded. Right. Right. Following Brown v. Board, like really literally the 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 model, the economic model that we see uh, in existence today around that um, for vouchers as well as charter schools comes in the in the aftermath where you had uh, a bunch of wealthy white parents, elite white parents, as well as elected officials. These are all white people. It's not even casting aspersions. They literally are, in fact, all white people um, who decide that the, what the Supreme Court has done is taken their rights away from them. These parents really were kind of like, but who are they to tell us, you know, how we should feel what we believe in a society that's based on these ideas of, of white supremacy and black inferiority. And so as a backlash to Brown v. Bohr, they use the, the thinking of an economist, Milton Friedman, um, who have been talking about how basically democracy, expanding citizenship and democracy to others, was actually helping to undermine capitalism and impinged on individual rights. So for white parents uh, in the South, they were like, yes, our individual rights have been impinged upon. We don't feel good about it. So what they did was 
they began to legislate laws that allowed them to take money out of the traditional public school system. Sometimes they just closed the traditional public school system uh, for years. They were like, if you're going to make us integrate, then then there will be no public schools. But in the aftermath of that, they, they took the money that was earmarked for uh, public education, made it available to white parents, allow them to use their property taxes, whatever amount of money they spent on property taxes, to send their child to uh, what was called segregation academies. So they opened a chain of public schools that uh, were privately run but publicly funded, which is the exact model for vouchers as well as charter schools. They're privately run, which means you're exempt from uh, the laws at the time, you know, saying that you have to integrate. Well, it's a private school. You don't have to integrate. It's just publicly funded. So uh, in one instance in Virginia, one of the headmasters of one of these schools talked about how, you know, he and the people setting up one of these segregation academies literally went to the public high school. And he says, you know, um, I'm paraphrasing something like we took everything except the football goals. Wow. We took all the infrastructure, put it in our private school that are now all white. Um, and the majority of money funding it is either philanthropy donations from whites around the country or this, these public funds. But uh, blacks were forbidden from doing the same thing. So they did not make it possible for black families to say, OK, fine, we, too, will take our tax dollars um, and we, too, will open you know, segregation. Mm-hmm. Accounts. We'll just reinstitute separate but equal. Um, But they were forbidden from participating. So for the districts that just shut down public education, what that meant in in terms of educational access and and the future of people in this entire region um, was was very much based on race. Seventy five percent of white children, even in the school districts that got closed down, still received an education. Something like 20 percent of blacks did. And the White Citizens Council, which was a white supremacist organization, an offshoot of the Ku Klux Klan, um, set up a chain of these segregation academies throughout the 13 former slaveholding states. So they were, in a way, like the first charter schools. That's the history. That's where it comes from. Literally run by the Klan. It was literally. Like, the White Citizens Council was not exactly the Klan, but they were first cousins. Wow. So, I mean, it seems pretty clear in that instance that the... The desire to separate private from public education and segregate kids in that way was was definitely racially motivated. But mm-hmm. there have been some stories um, in the past couple of years of school systems that have tried integration and done it in a way that seems to work, um, mm-hmm. either inadvertently or accidentally. Um, yeah. What else works? What are the success stories? How are public schools trying to fix this huge problem? Well, the big success stories, one, you know, everybody has figured out that Head Start is vitally important. It is vitally important for all communities to have their three, four and five year olds um, have access pre-kindergarten. Those can be segregated spaces. Those don't have to be integrated spaces, Um, but it has to happen and it has to be available and it's not cheap to make it happen. But when it does, um, you really set children off on a very strong path. The other thing that we're looking at and starting to see some real good come from are the um, what they call community schools or renewal schools, some of them. So they have wraparound services. um, They have smaller classes. They are 
attempting to educate poor kids and struggling kids in the same kinds of ways that wealthy kids get educated. You have teachers who are around. And, but you also, you know, you have things to make sure everybody has glasses when they need them. Right. Make sure people have enough food um, so they're not sitting there um, hungry. You make sure that the infrastructure of the schools have heat. And the numbers of stories that that I saw and, and wrote about um, in public schools where the schools themselves were, you know, having sewage backing up in the in the halls or uh, children huddling under blankets in, you know, 2016 outside of Philadelphia um, because the heating system didn't work. Um, you know, so so these wraparound schools sort of make sure your infrastructure is straight. And then on top of it, having um, smaller classes, more attentive teachers is doing a lot to close the achievement gap. Like those kinds of interventions actually do work. The the issue is uh, in this political climate, we simply don't want to spend money on poor people. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's it's uh, poor people, the educational forms. Um, that we're most comfortable with make money for companies. Um, we don't have to spend extra money, extra tax money um, to help those populations. And that uh, seems to really be a dividing line that we will have to get over um, if we want to have more to do more of what we know works consistently. Obviously, it is very difficult to fit 150 years of history into a 20-minute podcast interview. So for more, do check out Naliwe Rooks' book, Cutting School. That's it for Smarty Pants this week. Next week, we are talking to Phil Clay about a runaway hit of an essay he had in our last uh, winter issue. So till then, take care and stay sharp. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.